You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Alan Horowitz, who is a professor of sociology emeritus at Rutgers University, also the author of a number of books, including Creating Mental Illness, Anxiety, A Short History, and then co-author of a couple books, including All We Have to Fear and The Loss of Sadness, both about changing definitions of various mental illnesses, anxiety, and depression, of course. And most recently, this book called DSM, A History of Psychiatry's Bible. Now, Alan, this this is not just a history. It, it's really kind of a, a sociological approach to interpreting the 20th century's view of mental illness and the role that these various diagnostic Bibles have played in not just guiding sort of the psychiatric profession, but also, I don't know, shaping the way that we all think about what is normal, what, what is healthy, what is sick. Right. And I think for most people, they, they don't realize how much this process is influenced by social factors, maybe political forces, financial forces. Right. And so, as a sociologist, you can see things that clinicians and researchers can't see because they're sort of in the thick of things. Yeah. Well, first, thanks so much for uh, having me. Uh- You have a great series going, so it's really an honor to be here with you. But yeah, I think every discipline, and I certainly would include sociology as well as psychiatry and psychology, has its blind spots. And certainly hope that my book, especially the DSM book, help to reveal psychiatry's blind spots. And these really are ignoring how so many of the conditions that are seen as mental illnesses. And here I'm thinking, yeah, as you mentioned, especially the various anxiety disorders, what is called major depressive disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, really are, while in some contexts they can indeed represent disorders, that most of what gets called anxiety and depression and so on really are normal and natural ways that people react to particular kinds of situations. Yeah, one of the, I think, messages of the book is that we have expanded the scope of what we think of as a disorder. But it's a difficult exercise, right? I think the DSM-3 onwards was an effort to make this more scientific. But at the end of the day, I mean, isn't psychiatry a normative project? I mean, medicine is a normative project, Mm -hmm. right? The idea of sickness is it can never be a fully scientific thing, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, doesn't it always require some view of what is, well, not just normal and abnormal, but what is kind of good and bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. Although I think there are some distinctions between medicine and psychiatry, and in particular, for most medical conditions, there are objective tests. I mean, you have, you know, x-rays and blood tests. And there certainly is judgments that are involved, but at least there's some sort of biological baselines you can use. Psychiatry does not have any kind of physical 
test for their condition. So their psychiatry is completely reliant on the diagnostic criteria themselves. And I think the diagnostic criteria are fundamentally misguided and especially misguided in that they treat all symptoms as possible indicators of disorder, whereas, at least in my view, many or probably even most symptoms are totally natural and designed responses to particular kinds of contexts. Well, maybe we can go back in time to the days before the DSM-3. I think in the book, you make it clear that the one and two kind of didn't really make much of an impact. But you mentioned that psychiatry as a profession really began to dominate people's conception of themselves right around World War II. But the predominant school of psychiatry was Freudian or analytical. And so when the DSM-3 came along, what was it trying to do, right? I think that when we go back to the days of Mother's Little Helper or Milltown and Valium, I was surprised to see that even back then, over half of all Americans had tried some kind of tranquilizer. So the psychiatrization of America goes back pretty far. What was the main goal of introducing the diagnostic manual Well, psychiatry was firmly embedded in American culture. There's no doubt about that. In the latter part of the 1940s, certainly throughout the 1950s, and then you sort of have a lot of criticism starting in the 1960s, but what was really not embedded in culture were particular diagnoses, that diagnoses were simply not a major aspect of analytic psychiatry. What was important were not symptoms, because symptoms could be thoroughly misleading. What was important was what was unseen, what was in the person itself, but not visible. Okay, well, that meant that psychiatry, it would be almost impossible for it to be a scientific discipline, that there there was just no foundation whatsoever for saying a person had one condition rather than another condition because psychiatrists just didn't care what particular condition people had. And likewise, the drugs that, as you mentioned, were hugely popular in the 1950s, is the tranquilizers, weren't seen as remedies for any particular disorder. They had this sort of all-purpose functioning. And it's really interesting to look at the advertisements for them, which are targeted as broadly as possible for any imaginable sort of social problem. And the that just wasn't disguised at all. I mean, that they weren't seen as so much treatment for mental illnesses as treatments for distressing life conditions. Well, the problems that created for psychiatry was, first of all, medicine is really moving in a very scientific way. So that divorces psychiatry, makes it sort of a stepchild, the ugly stepchild of medicine, because it wasn't scientific. It didn't even know what entities it was dealing with, for one thing. 
For another thing, in the early 1960s, the Food and Drug Administration adopted regulations that forced the drug companies to advertise products for particular kinds of conditions. So it really was no longer acceptable for them to say, oh, you're really stressed out. You should take Valium or you should take Librium. You had to to have done trials that showed your product was effective with major depression or with generalized anxiety disorder. Psychiatry then, in the 1970s, was in an unacceptable position, both within the medicine, which didn't regard it as scientific, as in the culture the sort of dominant analytic paradigm is just being hammered and you know psychiatry no longer had the cultural prestige that it once did that the drug companies are no longer able to rely on these very you know, general sorts of problems it was clear that some totally new model was necessary and under the direction of Robert Spitzer, who's really by far the psychiatrist who was most responsible for establishing this new paradigm, that symptoms would become the basis. This totally inverts the analytic view that symptoms are just a tool to use to see what's underneath. That mm -hmm. for yeah, Spitzer's paradigm that was realized, as you mentioned earlier, in the DSM-3 that was published in 1980, that symptoms are everything. I mean, that's what mental illnesses are. So that if you're depressed, you need to have five of these nine specific symptoms. If you don't have those five, you're not you don't have major depressive disorder, and so on and so on through all of the several hundred diagnoses that emerge, which is another total difference of the DSM-3 paradigm. I mean, before you had neuroses, you had psychoses, and that was pretty much it. I mean, nobody really cared about the particular diagnoses, which becomes absolutely central following the DSM-3. So the analytical view in, in many ways was unscientific, right? It was not very rigorous. It didn't have diagnostic criteria. But I guess one thing that it did have going for it was that you know, it was interested in, in, in context to, to some degree and life history. Right. And, and that, that part was pushed to the side, right? When the symptoms became everything. I was, I was wondering if you could talk about Kreppelin, right? I wasn't really aware of the extent to which this, this guy Kreppelin shaped the whole debate over mental illness and the scientific basis for diagnoses. Yeah, Kreppelin was, I would say, probably along with Sigmund Freud, and they, by the way, were bitter enemies of, of each mm -hmm. other, were probably the two most important figures in psychiatric history. And Kreppelin unlike Freud, who emphasized what was hidden, what was unconscious, what you couldn't see, for Kraepelin, symptoms were everything. You had to make very close observations of patient presentations. But Kraepelin, unlike the DSM-3 that followed, really only focused on two 
major conditions, uh, dementia praecox, which we now call schizophrenia, and manic depression, which we now call bipolar disorder. And those were really the only two conditions that he gave prominence to. But I think his emphasis on observation and on rigorous procedures of definition was what endeared him to Spitzer and other research psychiatrists that came about 50 years following Kraepelin's death. So now now this idea of just, you have a bunch of symptoms and then based on the collection of symptoms, come up with a a diagnosis, right? And the diagnosis is just what bundle of symptoms are you exhibiting? And it's alleviating the symptoms that is the work of the psychiatrist. And so I think the goal of Spitzer was to be theory neutral, right? Now, yes. now, does this mean that he didn't want to take a stand on theory and he wanted to let different theorists compete? Or was it that he didn't believe in theory and that the causes were irrelevant of the symptoms as long as we got rid of the symptoms? Right. I think it was more of a political stance that Spitzer realized to implement a new diagnostic symptom. He couldn't just rely on his allies who agreed with his very narrow theoretical and biologically oriented approach, he had to convince non-biological psychiatrists as well to go along with this. They could find many fervently opposed the implementation of the DSM-3, but once it was implemented, they saw tremendous advantages for them. They didn't believe in the symptom-based approach. But it didn't matter if they believed in it or not. They would get their reimbursement from insurance companies that required diagnoses. They could get their research funded by the government, which also required diagnoses, that it turned out not to hamper their actual practices. So it turned out to be a political genius on the part of Spitzer. who did this not so much because of his beliefs as it was just an enormously clever way to have the psychiatric profession, which generally was very skeptical of his aims, but nevertheless to accept his proposals. So the clinicians were predominantly psychoanalytical and the researchers were primarily biological. And so this was a sort of way of bringing those two worlds together by leaving out the stuff that was controversial, the ideologies, and just focusing on the things that people could potentially agree on. Yeah. Although the DSM-3, as I mentioned, which went into effect in 1980, also totally changed the balance of power within the psychiatric profession. That very, very few psychiatrists who trained after 1980 went into anything resembling psychoanalysis. I mean, it basically, analysis lives in certain corners today of the mental health professions, but in psychiatry itself is virtually dead. So I think what's surprising to a lot of people is how political this process is. I mean, for someone who spends their time in academia, it's no surprise that there's lots of politics. But I think the seminal event that really brought the whole political nature of this to the fore was the debate over homosexuality, which of yes. course preceded the release of, of the DSM-3. And 
And so I think there were newspaper headlines that said psychiatrists declare that homosexuality mm-hmm. is not an illness and that that's a victory for homosexuals. So two things. One is that, you know, this could be decided by a vote, which I think yes. is a little bit interesting. And then two, this idea that it's a victory. So I think back in those days, being declared mentally ill was considered a stigma. And it seems like by the time we get to the present, people are lobbying to be declared mentally ill. First of all, I guess, talk about the sort of the political nature of this. And and then secondly, maybe talk about how being mentally ill has sort of changed from something that was stigmatized you to something that entitled you to benefits, <laughs> special treatment, and also gave practitioners ways of getting reimbursed. I think, as you correctly pointed out, the 1973 decision to take homosexuality out of what was then the DSM-2 was a landmark, but it truly contributed to the discrediting of psychiatry at that time because, you know, as newspaper headlines that say psychiatrists vote to take homosexuality out of the manual, you know, that notion that you can vote on whether something is an illness or not is about as far away from an x-ray or blood tests to that will show whether an illness is a disease is present, so that it really contributed to the total discrediting of psychiatry's diagnostic system at that time. But again, as you also mentioned in the most recent controversies over was the DSM five in 2013, that the same groups, the LGBTQ groups that so firmly lobbied to get homosexuality out of the manual, did the same thing with gender dysphoria to keep it in the manual. And it wasn't that they thought gender dysphoria was truly a disease. It was that diagnoses had become Mm -hmm. essential to get the kind of treatment that people need. So if someone wants to transition from one gender to another, that's pretty expensive and process that involves surgeons as well as psychiatrists. So if gender dysphoria was not an illness, they couldn't get their transitioning paid for. So they lobbied just as fervently to keep gender dysphoria in the manual, and not because they believed it was a mental illness, but because it was necessary for them to have reimbursement for the procedures they were having. So this is a sort of a, a total flip in in the view of sexuality and mental illness. But you also you know, mentioned just the nature of stigma. It hasn't gone away for getting diagnoses of mental illness, but it certainly has lessened tremendously. We just hear over and over what is misleadingly called mental health, even though it's just the opposite of mental health. It's really mental ill health. You know, how everyone now seems to have depression or seems to have anxiety, the most common conditions no longer involve the stigmatization that they once have. Um, And certainly being traumatized and having PTSD is probably the least stigmatizing condition of all. Mm -hmm. And so that's another genuine change in current culture. 
I guess the bigger question, which you mentioned in a lot of your books, is are we actually getting sicker? If you look at all the, the metrics for ADHD and for MDD and for PTSD and anxiety, I mean, pretty much every single indicator, particularly post-pandemic, these things have gone yeah. off the charts. Are we actually getting sicker? I mean, I teach a course in data and decisions, and I always look at these metrics like concussions. So concussions are on the rise in high school football. But of course, the way in which we diagnose it has radically changed. But it seems like both explanations are plausible. I mean, on the one hand, we could argue this is all an artifact of how we measure things. But I think there's also, you know, you could make a pretty strong case for, even if you have this evolutionary view that you do, you know, the mismatches are just getting greater and greater and the world is looking mm -hmm. increasingly different from the world that we've evolved to be in. And so it wouldn't be surprising if you tracked elephants I bet elephants would be more and more depressed because more and more of them are in zoos, right? Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't say that's an artifact of measurement. We'd say, you know, yeah. they're all in zoos and they're all being poached. And so, of course, they're going to be mentally ill. So are, are we getting sicker or how, is there is there a way that we can objectively measure this? You know, we can't look at their DNA to figure out if they were mentally ill, right? How would we measure this? Yeah, it's an enormously complex and difficult question. My own view is that the purported increases in conditions like anxiety and depression and PTSD are not entirely, but for the most part, artifacts of the way that we measure them with you know, these symptom-based questions that ask, you know, well, have you been anxious in the last two weeks or, or have you been depressed or so on, that the meaning of the questions that are used change over time. I mean, that say in the 1980s, notions of anxiety and depression were sort of new in the culture. I mean, people weren't as familiar. Now, pretty much everyone knows what they are. Mm -hmm. And as you, Bob, were saying earlier, they're not nearly as stigmatizing as they once were, so that people will be more likely to answer the questions positively, even if the actual levels have not changed. There is, however, I think a counter-argument to that, which is especially with electronic communication. And when you have kids growing up and spending literally hours looking at a computer screen, that that can have some you know, real consequences for mental health. And there's reason to think that they could make people more anxious if you're always seeing these TikTok videos of much more impressive people than you are, and it can make you feel inferior in that, you know, so that there is an argument especially in certain age groups, why this further mismatch, and this is really new in the last two decades, generally, where mm -hmm. now you just have the overwhelming dominance of electronic communication among younger generations. Mm -hmm. And that can have serious mental health effects. So I'm sort of arguing against myself there. But, uh. <laughs> well, but doesn't it really come down to two different definitions of a disorder? Mm -hmm. If I have a smoke detector, right, that goes off whenever there's smoke, and it's going off and off a lot. I mean, it could be going off and off a lot because there's a lot of fire, or it could be going off a lot because it's inaccurate and it's got a lot of false positives. I mean, medicine is sort of also a little 
kind of confused on this, right? So if I have inflammation, on the one hand, I'm sick, but on the other hand, my body's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? So are we still kind of confused as to what a disorder is? And you talk a lot about sadness, right? And if you lose a loved one, you know, you're, you're going to be sad and you're supposed to be sad. In fact, if you weren't sad, right. we would say there was something wrong with you. Are we making a mistake by saying that the, the sadness, it's, don't, we need to understand the context to understand whether yeah. the system is broken? If we're losing loved ones every week and so we're continuously sad, that's also a bad thing, right? So do we have an agreement as to what constitutes a disorder? Well, no. Well, I think physicians are much more likely to understand that symptoms do not necessarily indicate a disorder. So if you know, somebody is coughing, I mean, a cough is an adaptive response to clear the lungs. It can be a positive. So if you know, somebody is coughing, a cough is an adaptive response to clear the lungs. It can be a positive you know, sort of reaction. But it's evidence that you have some kind of infection, right? Or it's evidence that there's some pathogen that doing some work. Right, but you wouldn't call the cough itself a part of a disease process. It's part of an adaptive reaction to a possible disease. And many things like fevers or physical pain are sort of nature's way of telling you that something's wrong, but in themselves, they're not pathological. In fact, they're just the opposite. Psychiatry, I think, is much less likely to recognize that symptoms can be adaptive and see them as indicators of diseases. But I think the second real major distinction between psychiatry and medicine is in psychiatry, you have three fundamentally different kinds of conditions. I mean, you have true dysfunctions, which nature never intended people to have. And so those are equivalent to diseases. Then you also have adaptive conditions that aren't diseases at all. They're just responses to the context that people are in. So grief, which you had had brought up, would be a, a good example of a non-pathological and totally appropriate response to losing a loved one. But in psychiatry, you also have a third category of mismatches, that is, of responses that were adaptive in what evolutionary psychologists call the EEA, the environment of ancient adaptations, so that at one point, they might have been adaptive to the very, very different worlds that the hunter-gatherers who are hunting big game and there's no writing, there's no police forces, there's no civilization whatsoever. And that's how our natural emotions developed, but they're completely inappropriate for the way we live now. It's very interesting to see yet what are the things that people are most afraid of and say it's still they're so big animals. And so in one of Darwin's books, for example, there's just a fantastic example of he's he visits a zoo and there's this very thick glass between him and a snake that's caged behind the glass and the snake jumps at him, 
even he's totally safe, but yet he can't help himself from developing a serious fear of reaction. And even though there, there was no snakes in England at that time, it just became embedded in the human genome to have this sort of snake phobia, which is still very, very common. And most of the things that people remain afraid of, they're just not a source of danger in the modern world, but they were in ancient times when our emotions basically developed. Is the profession moving in the right direction? So you talk about in the DSM-5, they eliminated the bereavement exception to major depressive disorder. And I think you said that, well, okay, that makes sense because there's lots and lots of reasons why you might experience a transient depression that does not indicate a disorder. But by eliminating that, it also could mean that there is no exception. Right. right? I mean, in practice. So are we making progress? Is one of the reasons why we don't take context into consideration, maybe it's just, it's too much work. Psychotherapy is extremely time consuming and understanding the life history of a patient is very time consuming. Whereas just marking down symptoms is something you can do in your seven minute mm -hmm. visit, right? Yeah. I think far from making progress, psychiatry is probably backsliding in its views of mental illness. And I think the best example of that is what you had mentioned, where even in the DSM-3 through the current DSM-5, at least people who were bereaved after someone close to them died were excluded from a diagnosis of depression unless they had extremely severe symptoms. And the latest DSM takes away that exception. So that, far from being progress, I think is just the opposite. But what is driving that is the concern for sort of reliability. That is, reliability means that one psychiatrist in Los Angeles and another in Topeka, Kansas, and another in Boston is going to see patients will make the same diagnosis when the same symptoms are present. So the all-pervasive concern with getting reliable diagnoses and symptom-based diagnostic criteria can indeed improve reliability in that way, but what's lost is a concern for validity. Does the person really have the condition? So I don't think psychiatry is getting closer to more valid diagnostic symptoms, if anything, quite the opposite. And it's also interesting that the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, which is the major funder of psychiatric research, has come to the same conclusion. They're developing their own diagnostic system, which really has no resemblance to the DSM system at all. Theirs is called the RDOC, the Research Diagnostic Criteria. Whether that's going to be any more successful than the symptom-based DSM criteria is an open question. But just the fact that the NIMH has pretty much just rejected the DSM is a very important development. So the, you talk about this trade-off between reliability and validity. And I think you mentioned also that with respect to reliability, we're not there. You talk about these kappa statistics yeah. and how much disagreement there is. But with respect to validity, as, as a sociologist, how could we ever get to validity? I mean, 
From an American perspective, pretty much every other culture is insane, right? I mean, anybody who's religious is insane to a secular person. What constitutes a normal experience in one culture is going to be considered an abnormal experience in another one. Even within America, if you're an Amish person, your definition of normality is going to be very different from a Hasid. It's going to be very different from someone who is an academic in Berkeley. How could we ever get to a place where we contextualized everything? Someone would have to be using very general criteria. I mean, so for example, the notion of flexibility, which is an enormously general thing, would be different from culture to culture, has different definitions, but the ability to respond to different situations with different emotions is probably just essential to being an adequately functioning human being. So that that might provide a very, very general way to say, well, this person has a mental disorder because they can't change their behavior to respond to the situation. Now, of course, the problem with that is you're going to have a hundred psychiatrists making a hundred different particular diagnoses if you use such a general criteria as flexibility. It's open to so many different interpretations. So it's going to be far less reliable. Whether or not you can have an optimal diagnostic system, which is both valid and reliable, I would not put any money on that. But you also mentioned that part of the goal of Spitzer and his successors was to not have a diagnostic system that included a failure to conform to social norms, right? Mm -hmm. And yet it's kind of impossible not to import that. And you, and you talk about alcoholism, right? Or hoarding disorder. These, these are people who apparently they, they seem to be perfectly fine with their condition until their family and, and friends, they're the ones that have the problem with it, right? I mean, at some point, can we strip away social context, even if we wanted to? Is there a way we could forget about social norms? Yeah, no, absolutely not. And indeed, one of my close colleagues and co-authors, Jerry Wakefield, has developed the notion of that to be a mental disorder, any condition has to have two components, not just one. And one would be a dysfunction, which is analogous to a physical disease. That is, some psychic mechanism isn't working in the way that nature designed it. To work. So that's a necessary but not sufficient condition. You also have to have the cultural judgment that that dysfunction is negatively harms the individual. And those definitions really differ tremendously from culture to culture. But you need for a mental disorder requires both some dysfunction and a negative cultural judgment. So he calls this harmful dysfunctions. So all dysfunctions aren't harmful, only those that are. And harm is determined by the culture and not by the condition mm -hmm. itself. Well, I think, you know, when you talk about personality disorders, you say this area is particularly difficult to grapple with. And when I read about personality disorders, I can't help but think that we're using new language to describe what we used to call character defects. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, philosophers and moralists would call them character defects. To what extent is our personality disorders a little bit more difficult to work with within the, this framework? 
Oh, I think they're tremendously difficult to work with. Just the whole notion of personality, while it's a fit a general analytic framework, it really doesn't fit the symptom-based framework mm-hmm. at all. And indeed, the DSM-3, and this was another very clever position that Spitzer was responsible for, was putting all of the personality disorders on a totally separate, what he called, axis than all other mental disorders. So you have axis one, which has all of your conventional mental disorders, and you have axis two, which separates the personality disorders. And that, again, was a pretty savvy compromise. So those clinicians who specialized in treating people with personality disorders, they were initially kind of nervous whether Mm -hmm. they could get reimbursed for treating them, but it turned out they could. So they weren't really that upset with this two-axis system. The most recent DSM-5 abandoned the separate axes and put the personality disorders now with all other mental disorders. What has come unique for the personality disorders is that psychologists, and not really clinical psychologists, but statistically oriented conventional psychologists, they wouldn't have called them personality disorders. They would just say personality and have very, very sophisticated, thoroughly statistical models that I would challenge anyone who's not a psychologist to understand the articles that they write about personality and its disorders. They have become enormously influential in shaping a very different view of personality disorders, which are completely statistically oriented and that they want to apply to the whole DSM. They haven't been able to do that yet because it's very foreign. A typical psychiatrist or a typical mental health clinician from any background just it doesn't view the world in the same way as psychologists who are using, say, factor analyses and these mm. sophisticated statistical models And indeed, in many ways, they're almost the antithesis of what a clinician does, which is look at the individual person and tries to come up with what their problems are and a solution to their problems. And it will be interesting. I think this is going to be one of the central conflicts going forward in the future is the extent to which future DSMs are going to adopt these highly statistical models that come from psychology. As an economist, right, I'm trained to think in kind of continuities, right? But in medicine, it's like you either have something or you don't. Like you're either sick or you're healthy. And this is not a product of the science. It's really kind of more an artifact of things like, you know, reimbursement, right? I mean, you either get the check or you don't get the check, right? You get the drug or you don't get the drug, right? Even with respect to drugs, I mean, we have dosages, right? So in you think about broken bones, we have like small fractures and big fractures. Why don't we think more in, in terms of degrees and, and factors and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, that is the argument that these personality psychologists are making, which is mental illness is not an either or 
thing. You can have a little bit of it. You can have some of it. You can have a lot of it. And there's no sharp cutoff. I think there's two big problems with that view. One is that just as you mentioned earlier, I mean, clinicians just don't think that way. You have somebody has a condition or they don't have a condition. So it would be very hard to convince, I think, actual people in practice of that sort of continuum model. The second big problem lies in, well, you have to set a division sum. And yeah, so you do have this continuum, but at what point do you prescribe a drug? Do you say somebody has to enter treatment? There's got to be a cutoff somewhere. Yeah. Like if you have, if you feel this way for 15 days, you know, you have it. If 14 right. days, yes. you don't have it. Yeah. And given that all of the incentives are to have as low of a cutoff as possible, everyone has a personality. So it could pathologize pretty much get 100% of the population has some sort of a mental ill health problem. Look, I'm an economist. And so economists are always looking for where the money is. And for some reason, we, we think that, I don't know, doctors are pure and clean and aren't influenced by the money. But you know, it seems like back in the 1950s, most psychiatric visits were not reimbursed, right? right. Usually it was out of pocket, except for inpatient. So if you were in yeah. an asylum, that was usually yeah. paid for by the government. But it seems like the rise of pharmaceutical companies and the importance of insurance reimbursement, these things have started to drive a lot of what's happening. Do you think that the rise in mental health diagnoses is driven to a large part by economic factors? Are the economic factors driving the cultural factors or are the mm -hmm. cultural factors driving the economic factors? Is the science sort of the, the tail of the dog, right? Or is science yeah. the dog? Like, well, how do these things all relate to one another? I think they're certainly interdependent, that the economic factors are undoubtedly very important, but so are the cultural factors. And for the last couple of decades, they've been going in the same direction. That is, they're not you know, two opposing explanations. They're really two complementary explanations. So that more and more people are not only ready to accept a psychiatric diagnosis, they often actively seek out diagnosis. And that is their ticket in many or most cases to getting the kinds of drugs that they want to be able to take. These drugs are not being imposed on a resistant population that people are eagerly trying to get them. But of course, that works into the economic interests of both psychiatrists and drug companies and other mental health professions as well. So these are two complementary trends, I think. Now, you the subtitle of the DSM book is A History of Psychiatry's Bible. But in many ways, it's, it's not just psychiatry's Bible. I mean, it's kind of everybody's Bible. Yes. Like back in the Middle Ages, the, the populace never got their hands on the Bible, but they, they went and saw their priests every Sunday. And to what extent is this really become the Bible of how we think about our lives? I mean, you talk about how people have gone from saying, I'm depressed, to I have depression. And I never really thought it that way, but that is a result of this book. I mean, to what extent are we in our daily lives quoting this book? Probably as much as people may have quoted the Old and New Testaments back in, the, in a couple hundred years ago. I don't think a single person goes a single day without using terms like depression or anxiety or PTSD or mm -hmm. 
trauma. These are all flowing from this Bible, are they not? I think in a very general way, yes. If the sociologists came back and looked at the 21st century, 500 years from now, would they point to the DSM as dominant text of the era? Yeah, I think yes. I don't think it's so much that people are actually reading this nearly a thousand page massive book and going to, you know, page 617 where the criteria for this are. I mean, so in, in that sense, I think it's just, I don't know how many people actually read the real Bible Bible either, but generally familiar in a very gross way of what these conditions are. And so that their views have been, whether consciously or unconsciously shaped, by the the DSM, whether they're actually reading this manual or not. Well, Alan, I, this is fascinating. I'd love to chat longer. The books that, that you've written are, I think, fascinating, Creating Mental Illness, DSM, the latest, but also the book on anxiety, A Short History as an Historian. I love this. Also, The Loss of Sadness and All We Have to Fear, all about anxiety and mm-hmm. about depression. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. It's really a great pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.